87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct series, the genre-defining police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series and today's podcast looks at book number 14 from 1961 called Lady, Lady, I Did It. To review the book, I'm joined by my known associates, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. Don't forget that the podcast can easily be found by searching for the phrase Hark 87 Podcast on all the podcast apps and all the social media and YouTube. And as ever, reviews, ratings, comments are really appreciated and very helpful to us. And that's the scripted bit out of the way this week. Shorter this week, you see. (laughs) One thing I wanted to say in terms of this book, I think we should deal with this up front, because this is a broader thing we sometimes mention, is the notion of a spoiler policy. Now, we've decided that it doesn't really exist for this podcast. I think this book is a good example Mm. why, because if you haven't read this book and you don't want us to spoil it, then you're going to have to stop listening, really, because (laughs) right from the off, this is going to be spoiler-filled, would you say? It's a fairly major plot point, for the entire series kind of happens fairly early on. Also spoiled on the back of my particular edition too, which yeah. is great. This <laughs> idea of the blurb on books is an interesting one, and we'll have a look at what's on ours at some point. But last book we did was See Them Die, and it has a major... Well, I say a major character. It has a key character mm. killed in it, and you don't know until that happens. But that's quite a long way into the book. Whereas with this, something happens right from the off. And although we're tiptoeing around it at the moment, that's just because we haven't got started. So, <laughs> so spoiler policy, as ever, is we haven't really got one. But you can't say we didn't mention it, because we did. <laughs> okay. So I've uh, been corresponding with someone from Evan Hunter's life, basically. Oh. I sent an email to Jane Gelfman of Gelfman Schneider. She was Evan Hunter's literary agent and now Fantastic. represents his estate. Oh, right, okay. And so I asked her a couple of questions and see whether she was interested in being interviewed. I don't oh. think she's very keen on actually being interviewed. But she did give me a, a nice response. I'd also said I'd written an article for the online magazine We Are Cult, which uh-huh. I did, and I, sh- I showed her that. And um, I think she's told me off. <laughs> because in that article, I suggested that perhaps Ed McBain and the 87th Precinct novels aren't particularly well known now. And I think perhaps I worded that a little bit badly, as in, in my experience, and particularly perhaps in the UK and in people of our age and a bit younger, maybe he isn't as well known in terms of the crime authors as some of the big names, especially given that crime's now the biggest selling Mm. genre. Mm -hmm. That sort of came out in the last couple of weeks, didn't it? That was in the news about crime fiction. So I'll read you out a little bit about what she Mm -hmm. says, because it's very interesting anyway, and it's very heartening. She's not suing you, is she? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but I do feel like I'm, I've slightly had my uh, my hands slapped digitally. She says, please let me address your remark about Evan's work not being very well known now. Sorry. She says, in both the US and the UK and in numbers of foreign languages, including Italy, Japan, Slovakia, Denmark, Holland, the 87th Precinct is very well known and selling <laughs> extremely well. 
Oh, that's good to know. That's exactly what I said when I replied quite bashfully. <laughs> she says, the fact that Amazon has exclusive publishing rights to most of the 87th Precinct list, and now I've got to check this because I don't know that they publish all of them. Oh. I have a feeling they only publish 35, but I will will check on that. She says, it's a function of how publishing works. They have an option to acquire rights to any backlist books that go out of print, and they now sell thousands of copies annually in the US and UK. Also, Rosetta Books and Titan have a list called Hard Case Crime. Mm -hmm. We know that they've put out a few old um, books under the Ed Ed McBain name now. Some of Evan's juvenile science fiction books are in digital format. Lizzie, the novel about Lizzie Borden, is still in print with its original publisher. And there's a number of Evan Hunter novels published by the Mysterious Press. Many of the short stories are published in anthologies for schools, of which I found Ah. out in New Zealand that seems to be a thing as well, some of the short stories. Almost all of Evan's work is in print, audio, and ebook formats. So it's true that the backlist paperbacks are mighty hard to find. I'm sorry to say that those pulp mysteries have mostly fallen apart over the years. I think particularly like the Perma books mm. and, and those first American editions. The ones I sometimes see are gently enclosed in plastic bags for collectors. But Amazon's are beautiful editions, newly proofread by their copy editor and me, and reset and printed on more durable paper. We are thrilled to have them available and selling well. So I'm glad to hear that they're all selling well. That's excellent. I should probably stop bad-mouthing Amazon editions. I think it's just, <laughs> there's so much variety and so much interest in, in the old editions, mm. the different types of artwork from the sort of painted pulp type ones to the photographic ones to the that those Penguins ones with the graphic design sort of element, that it's just a bit of a shock to see the modern look of the Absolutely, Mercer yeah. Amazon ones. I've not seen them. Because unless you've gone to order mm. them through Amazon, you're probably not going to come across no, them. No, I think your your comments about them being hard to find and not well known, I think that's probably still correct. Cause, yeah. I think it's very hard to quantify, because obviously we don't see the sales oh, figures. No. But, and also, we don't know in terms of number of copies sold, mm. what's good and what's bad, and, and what you'd of expect course, for yeah. an author that's perhaps no longer alive and not producing yeah. new work. For, for, but mm. I suppose for books that have been some of which have been out for sort of you know 50 60 years that's uh, to, to be selling thousands of copies a year is, is sounds spectacular yeah. really i mean I'm, I'm not sure how much any individual title would do but the fact they're selling at all is pretty great yes it is and the fact that they're all in print is uh, mm. the, oh, yeah, most the, of them certainly almost yeah. anyway yeah. so that i thought was very interesting it's very kind of her to reply thank you mm. and she also gave me some leads for other people to talk to Brilliant. so I save them keep them to myself for now <laughs> anyway if anyone's qualified to talk about it it's it's Jane Gelfman so I, again thank you very much Jane I asked the questions as I usually do from our listening public mm-hmm. and our friend uh, Andrew who uh, contributed last week has asked a question not about the Edmund Bay novels but a completely un uh, <laughs> He wrote it properly, I spoke it wrong. He says, completely unrelated question, born out of pure ignorance about the royal family. Okay. And the question is, is the birth of Prince William's baby a huge deal to the general populace? Do you stop what you're doing to watch the live footage of the baby's presentation? That's not a random question, obviously. This week, the third child to Prince William and 
Kate. I can't even see. This is how much I'm interested <laughs> in the royal family. They've resprogged. Oh. They have, yeah. I'm vaguely aware of it. Have they given it a name yet? Not that I've seen. I thought it was quite funny that the child was born on St George's Day, but can't be called George. <laughs> <laughs> because they've already got a George. Yeah. It's a funny one, isn't it? You see, in the UK particularly, you see loads and loads of pictures in newspapers of people all dressed in Union Jack everything mm. or Union flag everythings, stood outside, you know, pearly kings and queens, oh, yeah. like it's something. But also you have to remember how the world perceives the UK sometimes. There's still a little bit that sometimes people think it's a bit of merry old England. <laughs> and we're all stood around waiting for the Queen. Oh, she's great. I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> A friend of mine is convinced that the Queen is terminally ill because Ooh. she's making lots of like public appearances at the moment in, thing, in, in, in things that you Get wouldn't expect to... Uh, well, what's hanging out with David Attenborough and stuff. Yeah, just like, is this a bit of a final hurrah? Well, she's a very old lady. Yeah, so that's the theory. But yeah, I think most people don't give... Bloody toss about this baby. <laughs> they don't really, give two hoots, really. Right. I think the opinion I generally see expressed, certainly with the in my own echo chambers, uh-huh. as it were, is that people are happy that the baby's been born healthy and the mother's healthy and all that sort of stuff. But there are lots of babies born into much worse scenarios and situations Indeed. every day, every minute, and perhaps focusing on this extremely privileged <laughs> thing is a, is a strange thing. But there you go. So it sort of bypasses you, or you're obsessed with it. It's one. It's quite a binary thing. Isn't it does it? seem to be, yeah, mm. absolutely. The eight thousand page pullouts you'll get in every newspaper. There's people going absolutely nuts on the radio about <laughs> it. It's just see, I, I suppose a lot of people follow celebs, don't they? And they just, uh, you know, yes, very much so. Similar, similar, similar. Sort of like, really, yeah, the the sort of earliest celeb culture we had was following the royal family, I guess. So They're, they're the royal family of celebs. <laughs> in all aspects. It's Might become a, a, like a, a big royal royalist. What, you want to become a royalist? <laughs> yeah, you Would know, you become like a royalist project? Get like a... <laughs> quite often have hats, don't they? Oh, they often like have zany hats. With like badges on. and Burley Kings. Burley quite, Kings um, quite frequently, yeah. yeah. God bless her. <laughs> Well, I think it helps to live in London. It'd be uh, difficult yeah. to do in the north, wouldn't it? It's a funny I don't thing. Know you'd... Like I say, I think the world views London as the entirety of the UK. And Often, yeah. It is not at all. Mm. But we're a small, a small country. Whatever happens, so I can understand mm. a bit of that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. London, like uh, in terms of the states, like everywhere else in the UK, would probably be seen as a, a suburb of of London, really. Indeed. Like, de- definitely, um, you see, just l- being into music and stuff, you'd see, like, bands from some Illinois little town that would be considered as Chicago bands, even though they're further away from Chicago than Land's End is from John O'Groats, just because it's the nearest kind of big place. Mm. Yeah. We're a tiny place, aren't we? Fairly yeah. tiny. And yes, it takes absolutely ages to get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And let's not even get started on HS2. That's well outside of the remit of this podcast I'd rather which we better get on with oh, because we're in, a, we're in a new year it's 1961 what's happening Paul oh cool what is happening let's have a look what on, isn't happening good year for the Beatles not famous yet in 1961 particularly but they played their first ever gig in the cavern in Liverpool which is where we are 
Although the cavern isn't really there, but there's a cavern true. there. So, you know. There's some kind of cavern. There's cavern esque scenarios <laughs> you can visit. It's best not getting hung up on the details of no, the cavern, really. It certainly isn't. But that's. It's the year where they get Brian Epstein as a manager and, and um, make their record in Hamburg with Tony Sheridan. So it's all starting for the Beatles over here, but they're not famous yet. So Elvis is still dominating. And I think we mentioned Wooden Heart whilst getting, mm. guessing some stuff last... We did. ...last podcast, didn't we? But he has two songs out called Surrender and Little Sister. Again, I've never heard of either of those. Surrender, Rings of Egg Bell, Little Sister, not at all. Christmas number one in 1961 in the UK is by Frankie Vaughan. Oh, marvellous. How would you describe Frankie Vaughan? Is he a, he's a crooner it's sort of? sort of a crooner with a little bit more of a kind of slightly rebellious teenage streak, but not actually edging into anything that we consider to be actually popular music. <laughs> no. But his song was called Tower of Strength. Nice. Ooh, I've, I've listened. Limey. I've listened to a bit of it, and it does seem to be one of these songs where basically going, you're really rubbish, I don't love you, you don't love me, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> like, sounds, sounds very festive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, Christmas number one in the US is by a white doo-wop group singing what was a South African Zulu song. Can we guess what it is? Is it um, Wimoy? The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Yeah. So the Tokens doing their high-pitched Wimoy. Oh. Don't think I knew that had been a hit that early. Yeah, it was covered by lots of people, but the Tokens had that first big hit. Because there were a couple of folk revival groups uh, probably around the same time who had versions of, of Wimoy at least, didn't they? Weren't they like the Weavers, I think, possibly? Yes, well, it was collected as... Um, by Alan Lomax, mm. I think, and brought over, and sort of the folk mm. groups sort of got the, it by uh, that. The, the, the Springfields, I think, possibly did it. Had a go at it as well. I've got Pete Seeger having a go. He played as that Pete Seeger version. It, I think it, it's good. It's good fun. He's he's attempting to do all the harmonies all on his own. That's that's ambitious. <laughs> There's a couple of other little ones here in terms of music things. Everyone's favourite swearing clarinetist, <laughs> Aka Bilk. He releases Stranger on the Shore. I was going to say James Galway, but then I realised he doesn't play the clarinet. Relatively politely spoken flautist. <laughs> so I see, I call him a swearing clarinetist because of the story that you've it's, got. It's based entirely on, on my mum seeing him live uh, when she was at university in Bristol in the early 60s. And yeah, I think he was often the entertainment and all she'd ever say about him was like, oh, I didn't like I could bilk. Nasty man. Foul mouth. <laughs> I assume that she means swearing, not just the way he plays the clarinet. <laughs> well. Foul mouth clarinet. Yeah. yeah. So I can't get you out of my head as, as, other than thinking of him as a man who swears a lot. Uh, Elvis drops off the charts a bit in America, though, at this time. They, the charts are a little bit cooler, I think, in America here. We, we're a little bit behind. They've got Tossing and Turning by Bobby Lewis is the biggest single of that year. Oh, that's a good Roy one. Orbison's in there doing Crying. Tremendous. Del Shannon doing Runaway, oh, which is just an astonishingly great song. Uh, yeah, rock and roll is meant to have died by this point, but this is still a golden age as far as I can yeah, it's, gather it's from this. Yeah, it's not bad. I think there's yeah. a sort of revival of, of sort of a bit of edge to it. Some of that Spectre stuff's coming through and, and girl groups oh, and things like stuff. that getting into the charts. Yeah, I suppose you'd have probably had um, the teddy bears by then, would you, to know him, to love him and stuff. Yeah. yeah so. Okay. <laughs> bit about film. Can you guess which Carry On film was released in 1961? <laughs> Important to know right, this. Right, well, um, 
we we need to know what. Um, we should have been keeping track. It's not carry on, Sergeant, because that was the first one. Carry on camping. Oh, well, that's much later. I have no idea. Uh, nurse? No. I don't uh, I have no idea. Why is camping after? Camping's quite late. Quite, it's oh, like it? later 60s, isn't it? But yeah. All right, okay. Carry on. Uh, I can't even think. Carry on Inspector Morse. I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> carry on regardless. It's the really weirdly no. titled one. Oh, I would have never got that. What, what does that even involve? I, I don't think I've ever seen it. Jeff Regardless is, um, well, it's almost as bad as that. Sid James plays a character called Bert Handy, and he runs the Helping Hands Agency. Oh, God. And it's, nice. it's just an excuse for a load of different scrapes that of course for it people is. to get themselves into. Is Kenneth Connor in it, I wonder? I believe so. but Charles I, Hawtrey. I don't have the full list here. There's a Hammer Horror film out as well, that year. Uh, we... What, of the main franchise? I think so. Well, a proper horror one. That's, uh, no, a, mon- a monster one. A monster one. I know the Revenge of Frankenstein? No. Don't Curse know. of the Werewolf. Oh. Ah, cool. Which was Oliver Reed's first film. Ah, Tremendous. He played the werewolf. Yeah, he did, actually. Yeah, that's true. I've never seen that one. Yeah. I imagine he'd be good as a werewolf. Yeah. He was didn't a kind he, of didn't man werewolf. Costume. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gave him a few cans of bitter and off he went. <laughs> Just amazing. Perhaps he sang in it as well. Oh, yeah. oh we can only hope. I'm a werewolf! <laughs> Get out of my way! Oh. In America, the top grossing film in America was West Side Story, oh, which was the was. best picture. Which is which would have been great if that had had Ollie Reed in it as well, and Guns and Guns of Navarone, uh-huh. which I've never seen. No. Two great things on TV: Mr. Ed starts, and Top Cat. Oh, right. tremendous! Top Cat. It's amazing that Mr. Ed starts in 1961, and yet it used to be on television in the UK when we were growing up. <laughs> this stupid talking horse. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. I should have ever seen it, to be honest. Perhaps you blocked it out. Mm. Yeah, and Top Cat with his lively banter. Now selling bank accounts Uh, with some voice that is just not very good. All those Hanna-Barbera cartoons Mm -hmm. have sold out now, haven't they? Very much so, yeah. But Top Cat, which I mainly remember as just always being announced as Boss Cat, because I think there was a cat food called Top Cat in this country, wasn't there? But then they'd say that, and then immediately the theme tune came on, and it was just, (laughs) Top Cat! Yeah, nobody overdubbed just the word boss. Close friends get to call on TC. Like, uh, why do they just say boss cat? I have no idea. Because if you, if you, the scene, somebody on just went boss, boss, like every time. Boss. With his finger on the button. So some some, uh, plummy BBC voice. Boss. And and then in the actual cartoon, like, hey, hey, here, boss cat. Um, (laughs) Okay, take B, C. Hey, T, C. Hey, B, C. Oh, God. I hate to say. Might have just taken you out at the moment, mightn't I suppose? Totally ruined this cartoon. It'd be great. We won't be talking about it now. Well, perhaps we would. Yeah. Right, let's get through politics, sport, and infrastructure very quickly. Right. Who is president in 1961? Uh, is that Eisenhower? As of January 1961. Oh, Kennedy. Yeah, JFK. Yes. And it's Macmillan is the PM, uh-huh. getting embroiled in loads of spy stuff about this time. 
there's some good war things going on in 1961. Oh, great. Think of any, steve Good war things? No, not good. I don't mean good. Oh. There's some... Bad. Good. Yeah, well, war is bad. When was the Cuban Missile Crisis? Was that... 62, maybe. I think that's 62, isn't it? But um, the Bay of Bay Pigs. Of Pigs yeah, that, was, that was 61. That was all of two days of chaos. Yeah. The Vietnam War officially begins at the end of the year. Oh, all great stuff. That's what you do when you get into power as president. Start a war. Yep. Teach those lousy commies a lesson by failing to teach those lousy commies a lesson. Yeah. There's all sorts going on across the world because that's the year that the Berlin Wall starts to go up as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got all sorts of weird things. Runcorn Bridge is officially opened. Wow. The bridge near us. Oh, okay. <laughs> Everyone across the world, I'm sure you'll appreciate. It. I went over Runcorn Bridge not long ago. So it would have re- replaced a transporter bridge. Would it have done? Mm. Oh. Which there is a picture of in the front bar of the Willowbank. Which is our local pub. It is. Excellent stuff. Dr. Beeching becomes chairman of British Railways. So. <laughs> <laughs> For people across the world, that was the, the booze of people brought up in a country where our parents and our grandparents suffered through massive cuts to the train track infrastructure in the UK. Then it was spearheaded by Dr. Beeching. Some That's why we idiotic went... bureaucrat. Yeah. Was he come from British Gas or yeah, something Yeah, he like was that? just some flipping pen pusher, wasn't he? Yeah, brought in to do the dirty work. Uh-huh. And you're, we're still feeling the implications to this very day. We most assuredly are. <laughs> All right, let's not get too hung up on that because it's quite easy to because it it's is. sort of sown into, particularly if you live in the north and you live, ever lived in a village, uh. this is sort of sown into your, your history as, mm. as like, oh, and suddenly we can't get to the local town because they've shut our railways. Yeah. They've built a Morrison's on top of our railway station. Yeah, Obviously yeah. not. Like, uh-huh. while the railway was still open. If you grew up in a place where there's literally one bus per week, the, the uh, lack of railways is, is fairly keenly felt. It is, it is. <laughs> but let's now turn our attention to Ed McBain. Oh, that's weird. If everyone hasn't switched off <laughs> by now, McBain's 1961 is a pretty busy year, which is interesting because he only produces one 87th Precinct book in 1961, which is the one we're going to discuss, Lady, Lady, I Did It. And at that only at the end of the year. So it's the first, it's the biggest gap in the series mm. so far, this. And I was, What's he been up to? Well, he released, he does release two books. He releases a thing called The Wonderful Button, which is a kid's book, right, illustrated okay. by Quentin Blake, who did all oh, the old nice. doll stuff. And he also releases Mothers and Daughters, <laughs> as Evan Hunter, a sort of big right. family saga story. Oof. There's a film comes out based on a matter of conviction, called The Young Savages, starring Burt Lancaster. Mm. I'm going to oh, hold yeah. off on discussing that, because we'll do that as a separate podcast. That would be good. I've, I have, heard, I've heard of that. I, have I wonder if I've seen it, that. actually. I, don't know. I wonder whether I've seen it, because but I would never have known it was Evan Hunter until no, no, researching. Exactly, yeah. But also, the 87th Precinct TV series starts in 1961. And actually, that's funny, because we are, we'll have much less to mention about that ever, because by the time the next book comes out in this series, it'll be off TV because it only ran for 30 episodes. Oh, but all the pre-production and all the stories we've looked at are the ones that they cribbed oh. for the majority of the episodes. Oh. So perhaps we will do a, a, a side pod about that at some point, just to, to wrap that up. Mm-hmm. But I think I read somewhere about McBain himself sort of complaining about that series, not quite doing it right, and oh. of course burning through the stock of stories so quickly, which is why these last two haven't been adapted because they were written after it went into uh-huh. production 
And the reason there's an episode called The Empty Hours is because that was published earlier as a novella, sort of in a magazine. All right. Anywho, this book does come out a year after the last story, more or less exactly. He's, he's got a few things going on, but I don't really know why it's taken this long for this one hmm. to come out. Except that in 61, he does get the commission to start working on the birds. Hmm. And he moves his family, Lock, Stock and Barrel, out to California, which is what he used to have to do. Uh-huh. Yeah. He describes that in Me and Hitch, his, his memoir. But that's not till September. But he'd been doing the film Strangers Where We Meet in 59, 60. Uh-huh. Presumably working a bit on the 87 Precinct series, because he did some teleplays for that, based uh-huh. and stories. Yeah, it's the first time we have uh, a gap and we we have only one 87th Precinct book in the year, which must have been agony for the fan of mm. 87th Precinct. So who wants to reveal the key thing that happens in this book? Who wants to break the bad news to the I can't bring idiot who's... I can't, I can't bring myself to do it. Any idiot who hasn't actually read this book but is listening to this. But it does tell you on the back of mine as well, actually. Yeah. So, yeah. All the blurb gives it away. It does indeed. They, they they couldn't resist like giving it away. Four people are dead, and one of them is Bert Kling's fiance, Claire Townsend. Claire Townsend is killed. R.I.P. In the first chapter. Yep. And not in a not that there's a nice way to be killed, but in a fairly brutal way. So there's mm. this mass shooting in a in a bookshop, of, which leaves people injured, killed, in shock. We've got stuff like that. And the bookshop's been in previous, previously mentioned, doesn't it? I don't know that it has been previously mentioned. Aye. They, they not. I'm sure we. Hmm. I don't know. Perhaps I'm wrong there, but I thought it was mentioned in a previous book. No, there's there's a bookshop where Cotton Hawes meets what's a face. Oh yeah. Is that not the same bookshop? I don't I feel think like so. that's a different one. All right. Okay. Delete this section. <laughs> of, uh... Delete your account. False facts, false news, <laughs> fake news, fake, fake news, yeah. alternative fake, facts. fake fictional. It's bookshop an alternative news. fact is that this is exactly the same. If you want to, yeah, you retrofit that to make it into a, a more. Well, yeah, pretty gruesome. Gunning down in a bookshop, shooting down the aisle. So there's an aisle of people killed for yeah. is it, but then. Other people got out in other another aisle, uh-huh. but um, it's an amazing opening because it happens so quickly. You have a, you have an opening in the in the squad room, which is the typical scene setting of people answering the phone, people chatting, people ribbing each other, and Claire Townsend's on the phone to Bert Kling, and they always make fun of him because of that because she's always ringing him up. Mm. Maya quips something about it being Kim Novak on the phone hmm. and given his association with Hitchcock about this time yeah. I think that's a little personal reference because I think Hitchcock Definitely, was yeah. obsessed with Kim Novak still at that point yeah so it starts pretty much like that and then they get a call to go out to this shooting and you think oh well that, so that's going to be the thing who's done this shooting and of course they get there and one of the victims they discover is Claire Townsend so poor Bert who Aww. went through this the emotional ringer Try to get her to go out with him in the first place. Gets there to investigate this. It's always heartbreaking. It is. It's actually really hard hitting. Um, Much more so than Frankie Hernandez dying in the last book because you've only known him a little bit. This is true. Whereas these are both characters that are featured in stories a Mm. lot more. Personally invested. Yeah. That's quite a good touch of, doesn't he kind of reproduce their... um... A bit from the, the, the first it does, time you, you get like a little flashback to it, just to kind of remind you of that uh, courtship and 
So it's quite lengthy though when it does that, isn't it? Mm. It's, yeah, a couple of pages. It yeah. is, yeah. It's it's chapter four where Kling basically it's a whole section from the mugger mm. is is reproduced, and some additional bits added. It's it's Kling trying to deal with it at home mm. on his own. Mm. But in the meantime, this is one of the points where we get tons of detectives come out of the woodwork because obviously if it's something that happens to a cop or a cop's family. Mm. The whole force is mobilised, and there's a great bit where Steve Carella. I don't know that it seems out of character necessarily, but he gets so emotional about mm. having to deal with it, how sick it is, how sick he is of being a cop, which yeah. is quite, again quite shocking for to hear that from your hero, from your main character. Yeah. And Pete Burns basically tells him to shut up and get on with it, <laughs> which is sort of what you want from your lieutenant. Definitely, yeah. Hal Willis gets a bigger role in this book as well. Yeah, he's not been in it tons by this point, has he? He, no, he had a bit of a spell, but and then, uh, uh, yeah. he disappears and comes back in all throughout the series. But yeah, Bob O'Brien sprints to the bookshop, doesn't he? From his, uh, yeah. um, well, Bob O'Brien, the unluckiest policeman on the squad, <laughs> actually has a pretty lucky break in this. He one. does. Well, he yeah, he, he, yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't at any point have to shoot and kill anyone <laughs> accidentally and be sad about it. He gets drunk with another Irishman. Yes, well, up the rebels, as of. they say. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. There's a lot of character pieces for the different cops in this. Arthur Brown gets another yeah. great bit of philosophical musing on the, the na- nature of being black and the strangeness of being born with the surname Brown. I think this book is really all about identity and identity, how it's expressed through the things people can see and hear about you. Mm. Because there's loads of stuff about how people speak. Mm. A lot of this story is compounded on the idea that someone would pronounce a word a certain way. Absolutely, yeah. There's a point where Carella's doing an impression of an Italian voice. He comes from an Italian background hmm. and he sort of, sort of turns into this sort of Super Mario style. Which come in straight after um, the Puerto Rican gang. Um, it's quite a similar theme, I suppose, isn't it? It is all about the different communities, the different yeah. people, the different sounds of the city. How your yeah how your identity is uh, expressed, and the only problem I have with it is that to do that he has to write in these broad almost mm. cartoonish ways to express yeah. what it's like if you've got a really strong uh, Yiddish yeah sort of bent to your voice or if you've got this Italian thing or whatever it is. I think probably for the time he's actually trying to write quite sensitively about that, but it doesn't necessarily come across that way yeah, as a modern I don't think reader. It's, in, it's not intended uh, to be anything other than just a representation. Yeah. Because one of the mechanisms of the book is that he has to do it that way. My voice mm. keeps going, excuse me. But we've got Kling coming back to it. Now, what, what do we think about this? It was his girlfriend, fiance, who is killed. Mm. And within about two days, he's back to work and like, I want to be on this case. I don't think that's realistic, but maybe it was for 1961. I just, I mean, I have no idea what a sort of cop's mentality would be. He seems really determined to, to get back to it, and certainly um, not all of his colleagues are convinced that that's a great idea, but... Um, well, yeah, Carilla tries to uh, see him off, doesn't he? You'd imagine that maybe there'd be sort of some sort of enforced leave, really, rather than just going, well, he's, it's his right to work the case. But I don't know. 
don't know what it'd be like. But then he might start on. investigating solo like they do on the telly or in well, films. Well, that's what it's really like a bit of a film and TV Maverick. mechanism, isn't it? it, it mm. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, tell you what started on TV in the UK in 1961 was The Avengers, oh, okay. which yeah. everyone thinks of as a weird sci-fi, tele-fantasy, mysterious spy thing, mm. but actually started out with someone investigating after the, I think, the murder of his wife, mm. which is Dr. Keel. Mm. There's not many of the early episodes exist. Oh, right. They rediscovered one recently. Mm. But it's that sort of thing, isn't it, that I go out to avenge, mm. and that, yeah. that shapes my character, but... I suppose if they didn't let him come back and investigate it, it would have taken a very dramatic strand out of the book. That's mm. true. If everyone just sort of got on with it in a really level-headed way and left yeah. him at home to get better. This is very get true. Over it. bit of uh, detail about Kling is apparently he's a lousy typist and a worse <laughs> speller. Mm. A little bit of character stuff there. <laughs> But it's, uh, it, it, it's got, uh, I was thinking, it, if you had uh, 87th Precinct Bingo, you'd get a lot of, uh, oh, you'd yeah, be close you'd onto be... a full house in this one because it's, uh, there's a lot of description of the city in it, isn't there? And there's the some very, very good stuff about the city. Which, some which may be new to this book, but others perhaps repeated. Mm. Uh, you'd get a lot for the different detectives. It's got your classic... Sideshow investigations, yeah. and it, it, when you—it's got the classic kind of—you're not sure which is the dead end and which isn't, yeah. and what you think isn't turns out to be, and uh, yeah, I did vi- try, vice I versa. Did try really. and doodle down the various strands, and I—I yeah. I, I, I got myself a bit confused doing it. But it is one you could actually—you could draw it out and stick post-it notes and, and mm. see where the threads go and where they merge, yeah. and then go off and, and other stuff because you get about. Three or four crimes for the price of one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the crime leads to identification of further crime. Yeah. Um, which is yeah, kind of a tool he uses in quite a few Definitely, of the others, yeah. and used to very good effect in this. You yeah. sort of yeah, some of the crimes have happened before the book started as well. Absolutely. Which is always interesting because that badly played that could be a bit of a cop out of like ah oh, yeah well this happened in the past but actually the way they all tie together is one of the strengths mm. of McVeigh I think. And the fact that it's it's sort of it is a mass shooting, so there there are four victims, but you don't know whether it is actually just some maniac who's trying to kill anyone, or whether there was someone particular in particular who's the target. Kind of allows f- f- nicely for all these different strands to take place, and then things to either link up coincidentally or not to link up at all and mm. it can just lead you in a few different directions and keep you guessing a lot more which is great well r- reading it back um yeah i just couldn't remember mm. who'd done it you know and um, yeah. So, so yeah effective i did sort of put out the shout about what people thought about this one and one of the things that that someone said our friend uh, stella said what they liked about it was the, the whodunit aspect, mm. which has been missing for some of the stories, mm. especially after See Them Die, which is not a whodunit. We know mm. everything mm. about who the people are, yeah. what the reasons are. There's no investigation particularly, whereas this is a proper return to form. It very much returns you to the procedural aspect and, and that whodunit mystery style, definitely, Classic. yeah. Absolutely. It seems like a kind of fairly determined restoration of everything you'd expect from from the series. And I had another message from... If you remember, you probably don't because I didn't. <laughs> I was nudged by one of our listeners about in our 
podcast for The Pusher, I mentioned a chap called Michael Slade, who went by the Twitter handle of Mountie Noir, writes books set with the right. special division of the Canadian Mounted Police investigating things. Mm, yeah. And he said McBain was a big influence on him, and this book particularly. Mm. And at the time I said, I must find out more about, about why this book. And so I did contact him, I got a couple of messages, and I would actually have liked to perhaps do an interview at some point with him, that would be quite good. But he said, by far the strongest crime influence on me was Ed McBain's 55, 55 87th Precinct police thrillers. It's no exaggeration to say if there were no Ed McBain, there would be no Michael Slade. I think that was a quote I'd seen mm. from his website. He said, I was 13 when I read McBain's Lady Lady, I did it, shortly after Hitchcock's Psycho hit the screen. Killer walks into a bookstore and shoots up the place, mowing down browsing readers like you and me. The motive was so ugly, the cop's reaction so vengeful, and the dying message puzzle... Carpenter. So slap my forehead and grumble, why didn't I see that? <laughs> that I clearly recall thinking, one day I want to write something like this. So at the age of 13, this struck... Yeah. Um, struck... His actual name's Jay Clark. Like a bolt out of the blue mm. or something. And he'd, I'd, I said, was this a big moment for you? Was this a, like a sort of Damascene moment? As they <laughs> and he said, yes. I had just published, in air quotes, 13 tombs, which he'd written himself, <laughs> which was sort of based on Ellery Queen and that sort of stuff. And what McBain's Lady Lady I Did It did was toughen me up in a single read and veer me towards my two professions, criminal law and crime writing. Mm. And there's more amazing. about that on his website, so I'll put a link into that. Oh, but it's amazing how this book can, you know, or, or one book, and, and in the, this case the one we're reading, can have had such a big impact yeah. on someone. It's a, it's a pretty gruesome crime, though. I'm trying to kind of recall the previous books, whether there's been anything so... Like a mass, a mass killing. It is quite hard hitting, and there's some some material that I think was probably pretty controversial at the time. Well, which yeah. I was wondering if that might have had anything to do with the um, relatively late sort of arrival of a UK paperback. But I don't know. I mean, uh, certainly, uh, it's another thing that's difficult to discuss without. Mm. Um, well, if it's going to spoil something, it'll spoil something. Yeah, I guess it will. I'm past that now. It's another another thing where he, uh, McBain uses a, a crime that's been committed to discuss kind of social issues at the at the time and like quite difficult things like reproductive rights. Reproductive rights, or just the the, the basic issue of abortion, as it would have been discussed Absolutely, at the time. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, this I think someone I read someone saying that you know, those views seem because it's an, an old book, relatively speaking. It can seem like a very antiquated view of, of abortion, but actually it was, it's, it was grounded in the law of the time. Absolutely. Also, it's probably quite a realistic depiction of America, given the fact that it's still quite a controversial subject for a lot of people in this day and age. It is, even though New York, where this is all but mm. set, was one of the more liberal places yeah. even then. Yes. And I was trying to work this out because the suggestion seems to be in this book that abortion was completely and totally illegal, but it wasn't. Mm. But the circumstances that lead to this girl having the abortion is what's caused the illegality in this one. Yeah. And it's due with what was Penal Law 80, I believe it's referred to. And I checked and that did exist mm. in New York's yeah. statute. So he's using real-world laws to, to do this. So it's all grounded in, in the reality of the time. I think uh, as, as, as I read it, McBain himself leaves... He takes a fairly distanced kind mm. of stance on it yeah. and he allows the, the cops to react in different ways. I don't know, like, Corella seems a bit, surprisingly, a little bit more kind of conservative on this than you'd necessarily expect him to be. But on the other hand, he is like a 
it does come from like a Catholic background, which might slightly colour his impression of this. He's still relatively sympathetic. He does sort of say that Corello himself wasn't sure. Yeah. uh, Maya seems quite sympathetic. Kling's definitely um, been influenced by by his relationship with Claire, I think, and seems like really progressive. So there's a a mix of attitudes and reactions, I think, from the cops of the precinct. Uh, I, I think... It's quite deliberately not sort of painted as a sort of totally black and white kind of issue. Like, like sometimes he, um, Bain's very happy to let you know exactly what he thinks of something and yeah. it really hits it home with a hammer. But he kind of yeah, he leaves it to you to decide which are the kind of characters yeah. you, with, you sympathies with without being. And it, 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 yeah, and at no, at no point is he actually unsympathetic to no, sort, no. certainly the the victim of the scenario. But yeah, it's it's. It's a funny thing. We're now talking about this abortion, uh, illegal abortion aspect of the story, which you, you might think has nothing to do with, you know, that could be a book in itself. Mm. Really, the investigation into that, because that starts with a corpse. It's like a mini 87th Precinct story comes yeah. in at the end of it, but then folds outwards into mm. encompassing the initial story about the, the bookshop stuff. So there's all sorts going on. I'll just jump a little way, a bit away from that, and I'll just mention a couple of things I spotted in it. There was a few real-world references. One of the victim's wives... Wives? That sounds like lots of... One of the victim's <laughs> wife's reading <laughs> books by a guy called Herman Wook, or Woke, W-O-U-K. Hmm. And it's about... And it's just mentioning why would he say stuff about Jews and things like that. Herman Woke, I'm going to pronounce it like that, wrote The Cane Mutiny which was quite a famous film as well, I think. Mm. And a thing called This Is My God and Marjorie Morningstar. In a, in a weird bit of very quick research, I discovered that in the in the book Marjorie Morningstar, there's a character in it who attends Hunter College. And that's where <laughs> one of the colleges where McBain went to school, Evan Hunter went to school, where he, they mm. think he took the name Hunter. Amazing. From, possibly. Mm. Weird little thing there. And also there's this, a great sequence... Again, about this idea of race and identity, where Maya and Corella are travelling somewhere and they're talking about the TV series The Untouchables. Mm. And all about why the Italians are always getting shot and things like that, <laughs> which in Corella's experience is certainly true. Well, very true. But one of the stars of The Untouchables, which was on between 1959 and 1963, was Robert Stack, the actor, who I mainly know as the voice of Ultra Magnus. In 1986's <laughs> yeah. The Transformers, the movie. Well, he gets a mention, doesn't he? He certainly Stacks does. Yeah Robert, yeah, Robert Stacks in here. He's mentioned a couple of times a little joke about his surname. But yeah, so I can't now help but think that, <laughs> in my mind, I've just tied it into my favourite cartoon film of all time, which is The Transformers, the movie from <laughs> 1986. And mm-hmm. I'm saying it properly because if you just say Transformers, the movie, people think you mean the new one. Uh, and I will not stand for that. Mm. Lord, no. But yeah, Ultra Magnus. Great. Just a soldier. <laughs> I keep finding these little things. I love finding the real world things, the mm. things that add the verisimilitude to Definitely, an otherwise yeah. fictional place. Mm. One thing I did talk about on our Twitter feed as well, there's a reference to the Doctor's waiting room having Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine mm. in. And Ed McBain had just had a story published in Ellery Queen's Mystery <laughs> Magazine not long before this book came out, a story called Easy Money. And that's another great little sort of in-joke and bit of scene setting as well. A bit of a prop in the story. I like all those things. Yeah. Oh, I found another one as well. I've just remembered. Ooh. Even better. Sorry, everyone. I do just go on about <laughs> There's a sequence with Maya at home 
and he's getting cross and the kids want to leave the dinner table to watch a thing called Malibu Run mm. which originally was called The Aquanauts <sighs> sounds good which was I think all about a diving team investigating stuff <laughs> as they do but that was on CBS in 1960 1961 and Peter Falk guest starred in a lot of that mm. so there's another tick on the Columbo <laughs> crossover chart God. it gets more and more dense <laughs> terrific um, Steve-O, mm. would you, in your edition of the book, turn to page 102? 102. I hope your pages are numbered the same as mine. 102. And tell me what, how that page starts. Where do you have lunch? Okay, yeah. See right. if you can find my favourite line on that page. My favourite line in the entire book's on that page. Uh, ooh. Morgan's got a different edition, therefore he's perhaps Struggle. never going to find it. Although I would have thought he'd have spotted it on read, reading through originally. You'd think so, yeah. It's quite like one that you've spotted in a different story before. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, this is fascinating could listening, you, isn't it? Everyone, us, everyone reading a book. Could you give us a clue as to which uh, characters a, are talking a, at the moment? It's like in our time, this, isn't it? Willis says it, basically. Willis to, says it. Right, to Willis, Willis Terry Connor. Glennon, who has beaten up Maya Meyer in an earlier sequence. That rotter. About mm. the reason he's, he's being held on suspicion. Suspicion of being a big shit. That's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is that a technical police term? We got grounds, yes. Suspicion. Suspicion of what? Suspicion of being I've a big about shit. That. How's that? <laughs> Get yeah, rid did, of him, somebody. Was it in Sorry, King, was King's it, Ransom that Steve Crowley refers to um, uh, Mr King as, as a massive turd or something? Yes. <laughs> it was fairly far down the page. I apologise to people. Yeah, it wasn't in capital letters like I've written it in my notes. But I, I do like those sorts of yep. stark, like, I'm just fed up with you type yep. snap statements. Yep. Professionalism out the window, you're a big shit. <laughs> that's, yeah. the, uh, that's the lad who, who's beaten up um, Maya. beat up Maya? With his weird family who's got links to Claire with a daughter and the, missing. Mm, and the, the mum who's, the who's just taking lies. Uh, drinking like, hot drinking milk with milk globs with of butter, butter in. Ugh. Yeah, and the, the son who's... A bit behaving a bit weird. Well, he's sort of like the gang aspect, isn't he? He's a tearaway teen. Yeah. Well, yeah. Kind of stepping up to a missing father. It's all a bit weird, really. It is a bit peculiar. Although Brian's on the prowl after that. Uh, but actually, it's. Because there's some note on a fridge about an address and yeah. he gets drinking with his Irish buddy. Um, yeah, good old And that's Bob what O'Brien. kind of cracks, cracks that, that avenue that of investigation. Yeah. But, uh, if, well, if we're not going to give spoilers away of everything, then, you know, perhaps that's got something to do with the killing or not. Who knows? Who knows? Who could say? I think what's clever, and I think when we were chatting before, is we all sort of said, when we came back to reread this, we'd all forgotten, actually, who did it. And as you read it, it nothing leapt out at me and went, oh, yes, that's why. Probably will now. We've discussed <laughs> it in detail and things like that. But even the clues in it just... I just sort of absorb them into the reading experience. Mm. So it's still, it was still a sort of like shock again at the end, the yeah. way it's solved. I have a little bit of an issue about how it all wraps up, but perhaps we can discuss that when we do our summing up in a little bit. What, the police brutality? Oh no, that's great. Oh, right. <laughs> Big fan of that. It is insanely brutal at the end, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah, very. Kling basically goes mad. 
He does. He certainly like does. Smashing someone in the face with his uh, with the butt of his pistol. Yeah, he is repeatedly smashes his teeth out. And uh, or his or her teeth. Out. All the fine upstanding cops uh, happy to report it as resisting arrest. Yeah, yeah. I am. That's the classic, the classic uh, response mm. to those it things. Certainly is. Well, I want to know now what, what, what was your comment about your prop, your issue with our. Well, it's... I'll do a little bit more and then we'll get into our summary right. because okay. we must be about that time. Let me look at my thingy. Yep. The Anthony Boucher, our friend from the New York Times, did review it in Criminals at Large on December the 31st, 1961. So it was very late in the hmm. year when this came out. Imagine sure. criminals in little and large. Imagine that. <laughs> Don't introduce little and large to the Imagine mix. Imagine that. <laughs> On, on this week's uh, episode, we've got um, Ronnie Biggs. You could do a little piece with him. Anyway. I think I'm going to insist, Stephen, that in the bonus episode, you explain to our listeners around the world who Little and Large were. Crim- criminals. Crim- yeah, all right. <laughs> what is it? Criminals in Little and Large? Yeah. yeah okay. So, criminals at large, criminals in Little and Large. Like in your, in in your mind. <laughs> but, yeah, Anthony Boucher says... Almost never in the history of detective fiction has an author permitted the murder of a character with whom the reader is already acquainted from earlier books. Possibly this is because it seems to be a device which takes unfair advantage of the reader, a deliberate play upon his emotions. Such at least may well be one's reaction to the shocking murder which opens Ed McBain's newest, Lady Lady, I Did It. Mm. Which at the time, in hardback, would have cost you $3.50. Oof. He's uh, very complimentary though. We know Anthony Busher likes mm. these, <laughs> these stories. He says, the book is well-written, well-plotted, with a fine dying message clue in the tradition of Ellery Queen. I really need to read some Ellery Queen mm-hmm. stuff. And generally as admirable as all of the stories of the 87th, but you may resent just a little its deliberately induced emotionalism. Mm-hmm. There was an adaptation of it. There's been one adaptation of this, and it was a Japanese film in 1980 oh, called gosh. Kofuku, which means Lonely Heart, which seems as appropriate a, a name suppose, as any yeah. As best as I can work it out, because there's hardly any information about hmm. it out there other than an IMDb listing and a couple of pages. A character called Detective Kito is Bert Kling, played by Toshiyuki Nagashima. There's a Detective Murakami, who I think is the Steve Carella character, okay. played by Yutaka Mizutani. And I couldn't find much about it, except that Yutaka Mizutani appeared in a film called High Seas Hijack. In 1977. Ooh. Wait a minute. Wait a <laughs> now minute. hold your horses. So North Sea Hijack comes out in 1980, the Roger Moore yeah. starring film about the hijack of an oil rig. This is from 1977 and it's about the hijack of an oil tanker <gasps> who some terrorists plan to drive into Tokyo Harbour if they oh, don't get there. Sounds good. Sounds great. It sounds good, but it also does sound like it might have been a bit of an inspiration it does for the, rather. the book and film of North Sea Hijack. Mm. Sticking with Japanese cinema, I found out, you know, the, the, the chap in uh, High and Low, yeah. the, he was originally going to be Mr Miyagi in uh, the uh, Karate Kid series. Toshiro yeah. Mifune, was that? Yeah, yeah. And, but they decided he was perhaps, they wanted somebody a bit more uh, jovial, and mm. he went with Pat Mariah, who... who I think was a comedian rather than an actor at that ah, point. Ah, that makes sense. Or, or he'd done both. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So he would have been very different. It would have brought, brought a, a certain, more intense. certain yeah, intensity and gravitas to the role, I think, mm. yeah. So I've, I, if I can tie anything into North Sea Hijack, I'm a very happy man. <laughs> Americans may know it as the film Folks, as the American title. 
cigarette creamer <laughs> too far down that. Can I raise something before I forget to? Yes, go for it. What on earth is the title all about? Well, that's there's one sequence after Kling goes to see the widow of the Jewish man who's murdered and his last word is carpenter. Mm. Yeah. After he leaves, there's kids playing in the street. Yeah, I know. And they're, they're doing rhymes and sort of games and what we used to call knock-a-door run or oh, knock-down n- ginger. Knock and nash. Knock and nash. Is that the Cumbrian? Aye. <laughs> knock and... Knock and nash. Sounds a bit rude, that, doesn't it? <laughs> a little bit. Um, and they're just... Lady, lady, I did it. But I've never... I couldn't find any of the references. No. That I tried to see if there's anyone mm. who'd gathered together kids' rhymes or done any yeah. research into it, but... But it just seems really weird. It does seem a bit odd. But assume that Evan Hunter grew up on the streets as a kid in New York in those mm. different neighbourhoods. Presumably that was a rhyme about that kids said. I guess so, yeah. A sort of taunting thing yeah. of like knocking and running away over the street. Yeah, and then someone, some disgruntled lady comes to the door and yeah, hears some kids chanting seemed, away. It just seems but, a really uh, almost random choice of a title. Yeah. I know... Obviously, involves the death of a lady, but that's about it. I don't know, I just thought quite strange. Yeah, it doesn't sort of, of tie title. into the ultimate villain of the piece in mm. terms of their intentions, but it does sort of echo in Kling's mind a little bit in a later chapter as as well, while they try to work it out. Mm. Right, summing up, and I I will go first, seeing as I have said that <laughs> I have some issues. Mm. Spoilers-wise, the word carpenter becomes the device for how they actually figure it out. This is not uncommon in 87th Precinct things, that everything happens in the last few pages in terms of solving the crime, and most crimes are solved in these series, which is one of the reasons I like them, Yeah. because there's very few loose ends, and it also makes the Deaf Man story stand out more because they very often are the loose ends. Mm. So they stand out, that's good. Other ones are nicely wrapped up, which is why you can more or less dip in and out of this series any, anywhere. But the the notion of the the coincidence of this lady calling up to speak to someone who's not heard her speak before and putting together the pieces of last words from someone that he's had heard reported and it's suddenly being actually right, his instinct is completely and totally right, and within two or three pages it's wrapped up with a spot of police brutality thrown in for, you know, good measure. I find that a little bit it's almost yeah. too convenient. A bit of a stretch. A little bit of a stretch. That's where it, a point or two sort of gets knocked off my uh, police shield allocation mm. for this. But I am a big fan of being back in the squad room, a big fan of it being a mystery again, a whodunit. I'm a big fan of the procedure. I like the use of the graphics of the sign language in there, which is mm. quite a nice way to include Teddy in the, in the plot. Absolutely. In a more involved way. Although she is still a bit of a sounding board character to give him an excuse to have Steve Carell go over the case. This is true. Out loud. Hang on, actually saying that, I'm sure it wasn't his intention at the time, but in future stories there is a lot about Teddy's decisions about how she's seen and what she gets involved with. And in some of the later ones, reproductive rights is one of the things mm-hmm. I think that uh, rears its head again. So there's a, if you want to retrofit it again, <laughs> you can perhaps see the seeds of that being here. Well, indeed. So I am going to award it a solid... Ooh, what's it going to be? It's gonna Where's be... the chart? Oh, I haven't got the chart with me this oh, time. No chart. I'll tell you what, it was suggested, and we may need to consider this for the future, someone suggested, why don't you do 
like a blind submission of your scores, so one you can't influence each other and try to bring them up and down. Ooh. I feel that's I don't that's know. part of the fun. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. If we started doing that midway through the series, then it's gonna like really mess things up, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure Kenneth's programmed to to deal with that sort of <laughs> <laughs> that sort of input. That would, yeah requires far too much organisation. But I'm going to give this 78 police shields. Oh right, okay. So we'll go over to Stevo. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it, the reviewer, the the Times, perhaps onto something there in that. Uh, if it was just a totally random stranger, a lot of this book would kind of not be as interesting as it were. Hmm. Um, but because you've got uh, quite a bit invested in her, it kind of makes you um, yeah, anxious as to what's happened and who did it. But uh, yeah, it, it ticks a lot of boxes, as I say, on the old uh, hmm. 87th Precinct bingo card. Be no f- real massive comedy character in this one, though. Yeah. That's true, yeah. There's the, yeah. There's a sort of wisecracking junkie at one point. Mm. It was yeah. the interesting I've seen in it. Yeah, so, yeah, I would say probably about... I will go about uh, 75. 75. I think a 7.5 out of 10. So. And we go over to Mr Morgan Brown. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely do take on board uh, all that you've um, said about this. I, I, I agree that maybe the way it wraps up is a little bit too kind of trite. I think the, the actual the way the clue is there is quite good, but maybe it could have been handled in a way that didn't just seem so much like snap of the fingers, oh, and there we go, we're, we're done. Yeah. And I, I, the emotionalism of it, I, I think it's, it's fine, it's quite nice to sort of see how these characters react in that situation and I think also the fact that it is a character who you've invested in but then discover things about her that her partner didn't know Mm. so it's like Mm. the revelation of this whole other sort of like existence that she has away from what we've seen of her I thought was really good Yeah, Um, yeah, good that said it's it's not one of my absolute favourites of the series. I think it's very solid. I, I'd probably go for about a 74, I think, on that one. Mm. 74. Okay, let's turn Kenneth's big dial and see what comes out the other end. 75.6. What do we do with Kenneth's numbers? Uh, we, we round we d- down. We defy <laughs> all m- logic and round down. To 75 police shields, which... <laughs> You know, I think that's. I think that that sounds about right. Until we recalibrate Kenneth, which we keep threatening to do, <sighs> once we've got the special spanners that are on order. Yeah, for we Japan. might have we might have a mass recalibration at some point. Yeah, yeah it'll uh, probably arrive like just before Fiddlers. Yeah, we will. We'll, we'll hit on the perfect system just before we review Fiddlers, and then that'll be it. He'll be mothballed again. Oh, what a tragic day that'll be. <laughs> So I think we better wrap up there. I'm sure we've got some bits and pieces to talk about in the bonus episode where we will look at our editions of the book <coughs> and talk about little and large, probably. <laughs> oh, God. But until then, I will say goodbye like this. Goodbye. And so will Steve-O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. See you. Bye.